Jill Shaw, and this is Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is Mitchell Weiss, author of We, the Possibility, a book about government and innovation. Mitch was chief of staff for Boston's Mayor Thomas Menino, including at the time of the Boston Marathon bombing, where he helped to oversee much of the recovery, including launching the One Fund to provide support for, to survivors. Mitch has also helped shape New Urban Mechanics, Boston's Municipal Innovation Program, which has become a model for peer-produced government and change. Mitch is now the Richard L. Menschel Faculty Fellow at the Harvard Business School. He created and teaches the school's course on public entrepreneurship and also teaches the Entrepreneurial Manager in the first year of the MBA program. Hey, Mitch, how are you? I'm good, Jill. It's good to be with you. It's good to have you here. Um, okay, so we the possibility. Let's start where you started in government here in Boston. Can you talk a little bit about what you did in Boston and what parts of that helped you think about what eventually became this book? I started in Boston. I don't know even that you know this, but I, I worked for Tom Menino twice, the, the second time most people know about, but I actually worked for the mayor, the late mayor in his third term for about a year and a half. I was just out of business school. Okay. I, yeah, I, um, I had always wanted, always wanted to be in public service. I had gone to Harvard Business School, actually tr transitioned to public service. Yeah. I spent a summer working for the city of Chicago and, and Mayor Menino had heard about that and thought I somehow knew Richard Daly, which I didn't, but <laughs> that was enough cre credibility to, you know, land a spot working in Boston city government. Um, nice. The first, the, literally the first task I, I had was taking leftover computers from the 2004 DNC and helping them find their way to like senior citizen centers in um, in in Boston in the back of an animal con control truck. Yeah, of course. Yeah, which is yeah. Exactly. Why, where which else would you get computers all. from? Right. Not at all. Um, <laughs> but it sort of speaks to you about you know like right, the constraints of government. Um, and so got that done and and had the privilege of working for him on some more um, long term things like bringing some technologies GPS GIS into the city. Huh. And yeah, dates either dates me or talks about the pace at which government change happens or both. <laughs> I, both um, things were going through my mind. I was like, <laughs> fair what, enough. What date did you say? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but I came, but I uh, ended up coming back actually to work for him uh, as chief of staff for his entire fifth term yeah. in 2010. And, and, and one of the things I came back to work on was to co-found this mayor's office of new urban mechanics that became mm -hmm one of the first big city innovation offices in the country, headed by Nigel Jacob and Chris Osgood. And why, why, why did he want to do that? Or did you pitch him on doing that? Or how, how did that all come together? Well, he, he had wanted new ideas for his fifth term. He, yeah. he knew that he'd been elected to a fifth term and people loved him, but said, you know, fifth term and he's getting old and he wanted fresh perspective for the fifth term. Yeah. Um, we wanted to embody that in, in kind of a culture and ethos of, uh, of yes, new technology, but, but, but mostly new ideas. And also we wanted to, to harness, like you, you remember that he had met half the people who live in the city. Yeah. And so we wanted any innovation office to kind of be imbued with that. Yeah. No, that, that it's really about the people and their problems and how do we work with them? Yes. So it was this innovation office with this, with this flavor, which was a, you know, community engagement, civic engagement flavor, because he was a, you know, know all the people who live in your city kind of person. Right. Actually listen. Listen to people, meet people. Um, so we started that office, um, and built a bunch of services and products, so to speak. Some people might remember citizens connect was this app for reporting potholes yeah. and streetlights. It's now three, one, one, 
Um, you also, was, you were the one who put a dashboard in his office, right? I was not. No, Dan Co did that later. There would oh, never have been a, in Marty Walsh's office. There was no, there were no, there was not a computer in Marino's office. Oh. Um, this is the big, um, one of the amazing things about creating an office of innovation for Tom Menino, which was he did never, ever, ever wanted it to be about technology. And huh. so, um, no, we didn't have a dashboard. Um, but we did have a bunch of startups inside the city, including um, that one and including one fun Boston in the wake of the marathon bombing. Right. So you and, were, you were uh, chief of staff during the, at, yes. at, at the Boston bombing. And um, yes. you talk a little bit about one fund. Cause that, that definitely, that, that that's how you open your book is talking about that. And so that I think must've drove some thinking around how to, how does government innovate? Yes. I mean, it was this, you know, as you remember, it was um, Boston's best day shattered. Yeah. But one of the most amazing things is all the generosity that started to flow in from around the world uh, for the survivors and the families of the victims. And the question is what to do with all that generosity. And what mostly happens in most places is the established institution in town, the big community foundation collects and distributes those funds. And we had a sense and some knowledge that actually that had actually been quite slow in other cities where it had been done. Um, yeah. After things like Columbine, uh, Sandy Hook, um, and, and so the mayor wanted to start a new fund, not go through the established community foundation. And yeah. that was controversial because we have a great community foundation here in the city. And we since have foundations here in the city, um, yours included, but, um, but he wants to start a brand new thing. So it could be faster and swifter. And, uh, we were told we shouldn't do that. You shouldn't start something new. You, you'll raise less money. We did anyways. We got started on a, on a PayPal account on a post office box. And we ultimately, collected and distributed $60 million in 75 days. And not perfectly, but by far the fastest, largest relief effort of its kind in the history of the country. And a year later, two survivors who you may know, um, Patrick Downs and Jess Kensky asked me to tell them the full story of the One Fund. And I told them, and they said, you have to tell that story to others. And I said, it's not my story to tell. I didn't get hurt. I didn't save anyone's life. I said, you have to show people that government can do new things. Yeah. So I was sort of left with this riddle, Jill, like, um, which is it? Is it what I was told? We can't do new things. And frankly, what I had seen in instances where we couldn't, yeah. or is it what, what the survivors had seen and what I had also seen in other instances, which was the government could. And so I spent the last, the last six years trying to sort out the answer to that, that question, which is, can government uh, do new things? Can we solve public problems anymore? So when you moved from government, from city government to Harvard and back to Harvard Business School, is that part of what you were doing was trying to work that out? The answer to that question? Yes, precisely. I, I had had the serendipitous meeting um, with, I ran into the then Dean of Harvard Business School who, uh, so Mayor Menino had said he was going to not run for office. Again. Not run, right. Um, and the Dean asked me what I, if I was going to run for office <laughs> for mayor. <laughs> no, which is a timely question these days. Uh, not yeah, for me, though, but um, uh, it's always so, time, Mitch. No, always no, 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 definitely not. We're not Boston residents. No one ever liked me. No one ever elected me then, now or later um, to, to Mayor Boston. But um so I said, no. And he said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, but I, I see all this opportunity from entrepreneurship inside government and for it. And also how hard that is. And I think we're partly because we're training people wrong that we take people at policy schools and we, they're interested in government, but we train them to be mostly analysts and strategists and uh, not inventors and builders. And mm. we take people at business schools where we maybe would be inclined to invent and build. And we don't tell them you can invent and build for government or inside of it. And so I, Eventually, he said, well, come do that here. And so that's how I ended up back at HBS to build a course on public entrepreneurship all about 
invention uh, inside government at Fort. And that's how also I got to know you. Um, and it's been great. It's such a pleasure. So your book talks about um, the notion of probability government versus possibility government. And can you explain how you think about those two things and what makes possibility government different? Absolutely. Possibility government is the pursuit of programs and services uh, by the public and their partners. So public officials selected and appointed and their partners that are new and by their novelty are unlikely to work, right? Yeah. Which means they, <laughs> they probably won't work. Um, they only possibly might. And um, that's the realm of the entrepreneur. You, you well know uh, most new ventures fail, although you've been involved in many successful ones, most, most don't succeed. Yeah. More than, um, you know, almost more than 70% of new ventures don't succeed. And so entrepreneurship is, a, is an act of possibility. And I, I would contrast this with probability government, which is the pursuit of programs and services that will probably quote unquote work, mm. but achieve really middling or mediocre outcomes. They're really not up to the task. Mm -hmm. And my own view is that what we do most of the time in government is, is probability government. And that's one of the reasons we're not solving the problems that face us today. And the argument I, I come around to in the book, you know, I started with this question um, after leaving the city, which is, can we solve public problems anymore? And the answer I come around to is, well, yes, if, and the big if is if we move from probability government in more instances, not in everyone, but in more instances to possibility government, where we try new things that are only maybe going to work. Right. Now, so what, what was circling in my head the entire time I was reading your book is who is we? Is, is we government? Is we the voters? Is we residents? Is we corporations, philanthropy? What, who is we? Yes. Yes, yes. it's all those people. <laughs> um, and, you know, obviously in, the, in a, in a you know, we the possibility, we the people, we we uh, here in the U.S., of course, this is a government of, by, and for the people. And so at some level, we shouldn't be even ever separating out people in uh, in public office from from people in the same. But, you know, to be more explicit about it, I do believe if we're going to have possibility government, elected and appointed officials in government at all levels, federal, mm -hmm. state, local, have to change. We've got to have public leaders who are uh, more skilled in trying new things, braver, although to be honest, if they're more skilled, it's, it doesn't take more bravery. Yeah. Um, we're going to need them to, to change. But they're not going to be able to change if, if they don't have the permission, the encouragement, and even the co-participation from the rest of us. We, If we're going to get to possibility, we need to move together. So in that sense, it's absolutely, to your question, Jill, it's absolutely the we in the community, we in philanthropy, we in business. We have got to give them, those in public life, our, our permission, our encouragement, our co-participation and all that. And we see that. Um, we see that when public leaders are, are increasingly going to community for ideas, communities providing them. We see that when public um, agencies are casting about for, for um, new ways to solve problems, that new entrepreneurs, public entrepreneurs, GovTech entrepreneurs are reaching out to help solve them. We see um, on occasion, um, you, you know, the, the episode we talk about in our class on your efforts in, in, in the schools to bring fresh food and, 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 and kitchens to these kids. Mm -hmm. uh, we see efforts of uh, philanthropy partnering with public. So it's all of us. We all have to move towards possibility together. Right. How did the, the past four years and national leadership and especially the events of the last two weeks, how does that make you think about possibility government? Because it, on the one hand, it does meet your goals of possibility government, right? Like we never had a president talk to us via Twitter, 
right? And, and, and basically communicate his every thought and whim to us in that way. And so that certainly tested something. It was extraordinarily difficult test to comprehend given the results of that. But are there some parameters that we have to put around, you know, possibility government if we are going to encourage entrepreneurism, in, you know, the notion of, of innovation in government? Yeah, there, there, there have to be parameters, right? We can't, um, we, we, as soon as you utter the words, we should try things in public that probably won't work. Yeah. You, you, should, feel, you should feel trepidation. Yeah. Um, and, and so there have to be parameters. In the book, I ended up um, adding a chapter in the book. It's, it's almost the last chapter in the book called A Possibility or Delusion. Yeah. And really it's very much to your question, which is, okay, we wanna move past probability more places. We wanna move towards possibility but we don't wanna move past possibility towards something much more dangerous. And we're at risk of that. Um, just look at, at the responses to COVID. At some level, all around the world, in our, in our community for sure, there've been amazing responses to the pandemic, to solving this problem, and sometimes in, in new and novel ways. Yeah. There's also been, oh, you should swallow Lysol. Oh, you should take hydroxychloroquine. And we have to be able to sort out what's possibility from what's just, you know, members uh, in our political class deluding themselves or trying to delude us. And so there are guardrails. There are guardrails. Um, I, uh, you know, without listing all of them, there's this um, notion that Eric Paley, a venture capitalist had shared with me about entrepreneurship. He said, he said, look, the best entrepreneurs are not evangelizers of nonsense. Yeah. There's truth, they're truth seekers. There is a truth and, and they will find it. I think in public entrepreneurship, that's true also. The best public entrepreneurs, the best People working at possibility government won't evangelize nonsense. Uh, they'll go work and experiment and, and try to find the truth and it's out there. Yeah, and really, you know, in the contract of entrepreneurism in that light, you, you do have a board, right? And you have an exec, you have a bunch of checks and balances that are, you know, that help create those guardrails and, and measure that. In government, media is, you know, a big player, an amplifier. But what do you think about the media's role in encouraging possibility government, but also helping to um, keep it in check? It's complicated. Um, it's a great question. Uh, on the one hand, I think we have got to enlist media, enlist maybe isn't the right word, but make aware people in media about our efforts at possibility government and public entrepreneurship. Uh, um, just as an example, when we started that mayor's office of newer mechanics you asked about, we told the press, we're gonna try things here. A lot of it's not gonna work. We promise not to waste too much time or money. I don't think there was one gotcha article about it because everybody understood we weren't hiding anything. We weren't going to waste a bunch of public treasure. And I think that's what more public leaders have to do. They have to go to the media and say, we're going to try some new things and we're going to show you all of it. And, and that's going to create an ability to actually try more new things. I, yeah. um, and, and we, um, there's this concept I write about in the book. I call it hot stove government. It's a riff on a concept from uh, Jim March and, and, and Jerker General, uh, two scholars and it's a riff from them on Mark Twain. So Mark Twain had written about this cat who would jump on a hot stove, get burned and never, you know, and then jump off and never jump on again. And the point was, well, that's good because the cat will never get uh, burned. It will never jump on a hot stove, but it will also never jump on a cold stove. And so it's an overlearning from mistakes. And I think we have that in government, which is people have been burned and they don't want to try anything ever again. Yeah. But Such a you asked about me. It, it's, a, it's fascinating because it shows yeah. you how long we've, these problems have been with us. But the question is, do, we don't really want to turn the stove down too much. We right. need that press to uh, provide accountability. 
you referenced the last four years. The last thing we would want would be would would, would be to, to have the press uh, turn askance from government and say, "Oh, we're not watching." Yeah. So we we got to find a way to both have the public, the, the press, and the media in on the fact that we're going to try some things that won't work. We promise not to waste too much time or money. Hold us accountable to that. And so that there you get the duality, which is permission and accountability all at the same time. Yeah, I, I wonder too, do you think it's easier to have possibility government at the local level? Is it easier to do it in a city and, or town or maybe a state versus the federal government? Or do you feel like there are places for possibility government throughout? I think it's probably easier at the local level. First of all, we are, you know, as Brian Stevenson would say, proximate to the problem, right? Yeah. At, at, at the local level, we're going to, we are going to be close to those residents. We are going to hear their ideas. We are going to be able to work with them. And I think that makes it easier. Obviously the scale makes it easier to test and try things. There's a reason why Brandeis called states laboratories of democracy. They were mm. a, good, a good unit of analysis for that. Um, I don't think it means it's impossible at the federal level. Uh, uh, President like Biden has said, he said on victory night, you know, this night he waited all his life for, his adult life for, he said one word we've been able to use to, to define America. And then the word he said was possibilities. Yeah. And when he says that, I think he's talking about, about um, not just the future, but the uncertain future. I think he recognizes that, and we all recognize these days that, that what's coming isn't, isn't known. Yeah. And so it's gonna require, even at the federal level, experimentation and openness to new ideas. Um, it's, it's probably gonna be harder than it will be in your local community. Um, but I think it'll, it'll still be necessary. Yeah. So if we talk about the local community for a second, because here in Boston, of course, there, our mayor is headed to Washington. And so there will be um, a, a wide opening and big playing field um, of mayoral candidates. And you, know, you talk in your book as well about the citizen's role in possibility government. And so can you talk a little bit about how people in Boston might think about assessing a candidate against their ability to run a possibility government? Right. Yes. I mean, right. This will be the moment if we want possibility, possibility leadership, right. Choosing yeah. our, 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 the next mayor in Boston is one of those moments. Choosing our leaders is, the, is that moment. I think citizens can start to ask different questions, whether that's in their local committee, uh, ward committee, you know, uh, meetings uh, for endorsements, whether it's, um, whether it's an online forum, whether it's newspapers and endorsement meetings. You know, one question I would ask as a citizen or as an editorial board for that matter, I would just ask these candidates, like what amount of failure will you tolerate? Because zero is not an option if, right. they, have real, if they have real ambition. Okay, how will you manage those failures? How will you react to those failures? Will you commit to providing, as you asked about dashboards, the dashboard I would put in a mayor's office these days is a possibility dashboard. I wanna see all the experiments that are being run. Uh, let's be transparent about the ones that are, are not working. Let's be transparent about the ones that are. Ask candidates, how will you cut off uh, new programs and services that aren't working? How will you scale the new ones that are? How do you think about the municipal budget so that we can budget and buy for possibility? So that we can budget and buy for new things? Most municipal budgets are not designed that way. I, I would ask those questions. Um, I would ask, uh, mayoral candidates, where will you go for new ideas? Where will you go for new ideas? We know you can get new ideas from users, from people, the people of Boston. We know you can get new ideas from non-experts. We know you can get new ideas from outsiders. We know you can get new ideas from trying new things. Ask them where they're going to look for them. See, see if they have a wide open uh, aperture for those and then see if they know how to, how to um, then sort the good from the bad. 
Um, in addition to that, uh, priorities too, right? Because I would imagine so many different topics will come at any any mayor, but any new mayor as well, that a good leader needs to know which things can go into the priority bucket around innovation versus you know where tried and true might be the better platform. Yes, but I would say as you're as people are learning about these candidates, um, make sure they're not reserving possibility only for the small stuff for the yeah. the stuff that seems like safe to try. And because the truth of the matter is, it's those big vexing questions that need new solutions. It's housing in Boston. It's mobility in Boston. It's climate resilience in Boston that are going to need new and novel solutions. So our next mayor isn't going to have a luxury of saying, oh, um, you know, only possibility for the stuff that doesn't really matter. No, yeah. we have to figure out actually how to open ourselves up to new ideas and try them and scale them on the stuff that matters most. And what, and you talk a little bit about transparency being important to this whole, you know, uh, process of innovation. Um, how hard, having been in government, how hard is it to be transparent when you are leading a city or a state or the country? The, the instinct is to try to hide our failures. Um, I've been with many mayors, not just, uh, you know, my mayor, who I, who I do think try to be um, pretty candid about this stuff, but I've been with many mayors all around the country, all around the world. And whenever I invite them to be candid about their failures, they, they, they most of them blanch and say, well, Mitch, it's not your name in the paper. It's not, I get that. It's yeah. not your name on the ballot. It's not, I understand that. And they have in mind um, that if they're candid about what's going on and candid about their failures, then they're going to get opponents in future elections. Then the press is going to uh, come after them. Then they're going to get skewered on social media. And I don't take any of that lightly. It, yeah. uh, definitely a change since we, we were in, um, you know, in city hall uh, is, 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 is the sheer press of social media all the time. It's hard to get in, even an idea out in the world before it has been, been, been skewered. So I don't wanna be overly naive, naive and say it's, it's, it's easy to be transparent, but I do think there's an alternative. I do think that if we're more transparent as mayors, as other public officials, we will actually have more trust by the public, not less. They'll, they'll see us as more skilled in, in innovation and not less. And they'll understand finally what it's gonna to take to solve big problems. Pretending like we're not going to have failure along the way, I think has undermined trust. And I believe we need to try a new form of communication here. Yeah, I, I think that's such a good point too, because expectation setting is everything, right? When you're leading anything, if you set expectations for where, you know, where people, how people should judge something, you tend to get a lot more um, rope. Right. I was just going to say, Jill, t take the, uh, prototypical pilot program, which we love to announce here and in other places, right? Yes. A mayor or a governor goes out to, and announces a new pilot program to keep you know, kids in high school. And uh, then there's all this, these promises of how it's going to work. And then, the, then the, oftentimes what happens is the, the coverage goes away and the program either works but doesn't get scaled or doesn't work and doesn't get stopped. And I think it'd be so much better if when that mayor or that governor went out and announced the program, they said, look, here's what we promise you. We can't promise success, not this minute. We can promise you learning, quick learning, yeah. efficient learning. Yeah. And that's what this program is going to provide us. Yeah, that's what I've noticed in working with government is it's, it's very hard for government leaders to put a stake in the ground between where something is right now and where we want it to be, because then you have to acknowledge that there's a gap as opposed to saying like hard, true and fast, this is where we are right now, 
right? And it's not crazy for us to dream that someday we're going to be here, right? But that that getting between those things is going to be incremental steps. And but for some reason, it's um it's hard to get people to come forward and, and say things like that. And I almost wonder if that's where, you know, collaboration with um, companies and with uh, foundations is is critically important. Is that you know the, let that maybe they can take on the risk and take on the fall. Um, it's easier for them to say, we're going to innovate in this space. Maybe if it even is just around pilots, you know, to sort of start to show that the needle can be moved. But I, I often wonder if that's the right role for companies or philanthropy is, is to be the, the risk bearers in, in some of this change. And you talked about that in your book too, with Uber and Airbnb, and they had people in place specifically to work with government to kind of help understand where government sits today and where it could possibly be. But there's a lot of education and, and management that goes into that. I think it's a role, this, this being the, you know, a source of innovation, a source of risk bearing. There is a role for philanthropy and private companies in that. And um, you can look at history. Scholars have, have noted, for example, um, Carnegie basically provided money for the first public libraries. People turn out to love public libraries and then, and then the, public decides to fund them with taxpayer money. This was called, this is called auditioning for public support. And so I absolutely think there is a role for, for philanthropy to, to, to provide that. But I, but I have to say, I think if it's at, um, if we think that they can do it on their own without more inventive public officials inside public office, then, right. then we're fooling ourselves. That, that they can be, they can bear some of the risk philanthropy, you can philanthropy and, and the private sector, but you, cannot do it without inventive people inside public office as well, or with the public office and with public officers inventing as well. It won't work if it's just one-sided. You know, I don't care how inventive Bill Gates is around uh, public health, which he is, mm. right? And, and how much invention he supports all on the planet, which he does. But if they don't have inventive public health workers as counterparts, they can't solve the problems that we that that face us. No, that's absolutely true. They have to be the ones willing to, to carry the ball. Do you find, because you work with a lot of public officials in, in the work that you do and in the work that you did even in Boston um, in the mayor's office, do you find that government is able to attract more and more individuals with innovative purviews? We, we had a lot of success attracting uh, a new wave of talent in, into City Hall. Uh, yeah. We set out to say, look, this is going to be a place where people can work on big problems. This is going to be a place where they can have the, the freedom uh, to do that, whether well, there will be a chance to make a difference so they can see the fruits of their labor. And we, there has absolutely been an influx of talent into City Hall on that front. But mm -hmm. I wanna say that whether in Boston or in any other city or at any other government I've ever worked with, there's also a bunch of talent already there that just needs to be invited out of the woodwork. They've mm -hmm. been hiding a little bit, not feeling like having a new idea is okay, not feeling like trying something and having that work the first time is okay. And so when we make this invitation, uh, you know, all of us towards possibility government. It's it's definitely an invitation to people come from the outside in, but also people to come from the inside out, out of the woodwork and, and come be part of this together. There are uh, certainly skills and traits of entrepreneurs, modern entrepreneurs that can be helpful in government that we need, uh, you know, uh, customer discovery, user interfaces, data visualization, software engineering, product management, those skills we can find in the outside world train them up uh, for, in people who are there. So I, I absolutely see a 
a movement of talent towards this possibility work, Jill, and I see it from people outside government and in. I would imagine, what do you think? It's probably no time like the present. I mean, the the problems that we have confronting us, which kind of fall on all levels, you know, we have to vaccinate an entire nation, including all of our neighbors. Um, we have to, I mean, there, something's going to have to happen pretty significantly in education for all of the learning loss that has happened. All of these things that are going to have to happen in recovery, economic recovery, et cetera, they're all going to, I would imagine, required ridiculous amounts of innovation because nothing like this has ever happened before. So do you think this actually could create like a beautiful breeding ground for championing innovative innovation in government? I think we can take this horrible moment we're living through and, and uh, yes, bring our dedication and ingenuity to it. And, and yes, uh, craft a generation of, of public entrepreneurs of possibilities who can, who can lead us. I think that's true. I think that um, what we the other lesson we need to take from all this is not to wait next yeah. time for the for the crises. I I think this notion that a, you know a crisis is a ther- terrible thing to waste is actually pretty bad advice because while we're waiting for the crisis to come to facilitate change, the crises are all around us. The the the, the crisis in education, as you mentioned, it was here. The crisis in public health, not as acutely as COVID, but it was here. The, yeah. All the inequities were here. All the failures were here but somehow we just can't get around to really, really solving it. Um, so I, I, I hope very much that this will be a catalytic moment, but I hope it won't, it, it won't just be a moment that this will be sustained and we'll realize that uh, we, we can't wait to solve problems. We need to bring creativity to them all the time. And, and your part in the work that you're doing right now is you know these sorts of interviews, this book, your work at Harvard, um, which I'm sure inspires all kinds of classes and courses across the country. What, what do you want individuals who listen to this podcast or who read your book to do after they read it? Well, I hope we might inspire a new generation uh, to reinvent our, our government. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, uh, you've heard me talk about this. There was this book that I read in the 90s that said to me, look, you can combine your interest in entrepreneurship and in public life and live a life at the intersection of those two things. I hope that more people listening here, more people who show up in my class or other classes will see that there's work at the intersection of entrepreneurship and solving big public problems and will decide to live a life um, amidst that intersection. They can do it, uh, go work in government. What do I hope to see? I hope more people will, will see what's going on right now and, 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 and not shy away from government, but go towards it. Go to your city, state and federal government, go help, go make it a government of the people that works. I hope more and more, more and more people will do that. I also hope people who, who, who feel for some reason that government isn't for them, they'll say, look, I wanna start a company, but maybe I'll start it to, to, to really, really solve public problems. Yeah. Um, I'm around mobility, around water, uh, around housing. And I hope, Jill, that, that as people do both those sets of things, they'll do them wisely, carefully, proximally to the people they're trying to help. There are ways to do this work. I hope when they read the book, if they read the book, they'll find tips for, for ways to do this work that will increase their chances of success of actually solving the problems that we face today. Yeah, I do think, I love the way your um, book is organized in that way. What do you think the most, if you're talking to, like you talk to young leaders um, all the time who you're teaching at Harvard, um, what are, what are like your, what would you leave with, with them as kernels of advice, you know, that to try to point them in the right direction? Go look around you, go look around you. I mean, there's a reference in the book to these, these two amazing women, uh, Nusha Gailey and Mariana Matus. They, 
started this company, BioBot, uh, to look for data in sewage, uh, originally around opioids, eventually around COVID. You know where they got a lot of insight for what they eventually did? Standing over um, manhole covers, you know, uh, pulling up sewage with their with their robots, um, yeah. talking to talking to the the public officials uh, in Cambridge and Boston who were standing there with them. If you're a young person and you're interested in solving public problems, go find the metaf metaphorical sewer in your neighborhood. Go find the problem. Go turn it into being a source of a solution. That would be my hope and, and dream for them. Yeah. And do you think that um, do you think that we need to motivate people? monetarily? Do you think that that a lot of people are not choosing government because it doesn't feel like there are big possibilities there like you just, you know, describe in the book? Or, or do you think that just things are shifting and that more people want, we see that as, you know, as we, I mean, it's unbelievable how many people knock on our door for, to work for the foundation, right? Which is pretty small, but that I, I feel like the younger folks that I'm in touch with really want to make change happen. Yes, I, I agree. I don't think it's money. I mean, I recognize that there are uh, different financial formulas for people who want to go, you know, start a pure private startup company that's going to focus only on private things and, and people who want to go work in their city government. Like I recognize that's a, that's a different economic formula for many people, but I don't think that the way to attract the next generation of people into, in, into solving public problems is to offer them money. I think to your point, Jill, it's to offer them meaning. Yeah. And to it's say, to offer them work. possibility. Possibility. And, and to tell them we need you, right? We need yeah. you. They have this, they have these skills are native to them. Possibilities, you know, native in their mindset. They grew up dreaming of entrepreneurship. They grew up as, as sort of as digital natives. And so get, tell them you can work on the biggest problems and tell them you've got the skill set. Uh, you're developing the skill set to do that. And they will come. And and if we if we actually do the work. If we don't wait four and five years and a bunch of commissions and a bunch of RFPs and nothing ever happens, if they actually see that they can get the work done, they will come and they will stay and they'll invite their friends. Mitch, you're amazing. This book is amazing. I, I found it to be just really interesting to read. I loved all lo looking at it from so many different points of view. I appreciate that you wrote it for all of us. And um, thank you for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being a great entrepreneur. Thanks for turning your entrepreneurship towards public stuff. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Mitch Weiss, author of the new book, We the Possibility. So listeners, do we have it in us to ask for and nurture innovation in government? It requires patience and trust. It requires doing our part to make sure that great leaders are in government at every level. It takes leaning in and sharing ideas. As the pace of information and change of ideas moves at lightning speed, the onus is on all of us to be a part of the change that we want to see in our towns, cities, states, country, and government. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.